Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 356 of the Juice Box Podcast. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Dan. Now, Dan is the father of a child with type 1 diabetes. Dan is also a fellow podcaster. He has a very popular podcast, and he's good at talking. So there's two people here. What am I trying to say? There are going to be a lot of words spoken in the next hour and 20 minutes or so, however long this episode is. I had a great time. I was in a mindset when I recorded this about thinking about helping people. So the podcast sort of follows that vein a little bit. It's also just a terrific conversation about what Dan has learned about type 1 diabetes so far. I'll ask that you please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. As the episode starts up, it's interesting that it was recorded just a few months before the coronavirus uh, COVID-19 hit. So there's a story about what it's like to have your kids at home during a a school strike. It kind of feels quaint at this point. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter and Touched by Type 1. If you take a moment to visit touchedbytype1.org, you'll see programs, awareness campaigns, and ways for you to get involved. Touched by Type 1 has programs and services for those living with a daily reality of type 1 diabetes. They offer supportive community with many interactive programs and creative resources designed to empower people with type 1 to thrive. Touchedbytype1.org The Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter. Absolutely terrific. Small, easy to use, easy to read, super bright light for overnight. Beautiful test strips that you can go back in and test again with if you miss the blood drop the first time or you don't get quite enough. And speaking of those test strips, and speaking of test strips, did you know it's possible that your copay for test strips is more than you might pay if you just bought them in cash? Check out contournext.com forward slash juice box to find out if that may be your situation. While you're there, you'll be able to look into what I think is the greatest blood glucose meter on the market. It's the one Arden's been using for well over a year now, and it is without a doubt better than every other meter she's ever had. That is no over-exaggeration. The accuracy alone, amazing. Usability, second to none. I just love it. It's it's perfect. Contournext.com forward slash juice box. Head over there today. Take a look. You've probably been using the old You've probably been using the same old busted up meter forever. You don't even know how accurate it is. How long ago was that thing made? Right? Do you even look into those things? Luckily for you, Arden's using one of the best available and they're sponsors of the show. Contournext.com forward slash juicebox. Head on over. There are links to all of the advertisers at juiceboxpodcast.com and right there in the notes of your podcast player. Thank you for supporting the show. Let's get started. How are you? I'm good. We're uh, at the end of the second week of a school strike here in Chicago, and I have two teenagers walking around upstairs, so hopefully they won't be making too much of a racket. Bored out of their minds? 
They're very happy. I'm out of my mind. <laughs> I was, let me get this right, in fourth or fifth grade, and my school went on strike, and it ended up being the longest teacher strike in the history of Pennsylvania. And we were out for a little over three months. Wow. We came back, watched, my God, film strips of... Oh, what was that? He was like, uh, I can't believe I can't think of this. I'm a big kind of Persian guy with a sword, no shirt, would like go into a cave and take jewels and stuff. Like these were very popular, like uh, television movies back then. God, I can't think of it. I'll yeah, think, I don't remember that. And I'll think not, uh, not Alibaba. Uh, something very close, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'd watch th- we watch those for two days, and then no lie, it was summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you think that has impacted your life? I know exactly how it has, actually. Yeah. I'm an incredibly big fan of the television show MASH because of it. Interesting. That's the only thing I know that came of it. Um, <laughs> uh, although I've never seen my parents happier than the day the um, the strike was announced as ending. They, yeah. they genuinely look elated when, <laughs> when they realized we were going. I mean, three months was – it threw people's lives out of whack, you know. Um, yeah, well, I work at home, so it's um, it's like every day is take your child to work day. I'm just telling you, I can, I just recently did it, watched every episode of MASH while I uh-huh. was, while I was, you know, cooking and, and doing things like that. But I know almost every word of every episode. Like as soon as it starts, uh-huh. I'm like, oh, this is the one where, because it ran ad nauseum on television. And at some point we got, we were just, we were out of things to do. Kids even stopped playing with each other. It was just like, we were like, oh hmm. my God, this is never going to end. And we all just sort of reverted back into our houses and watched TV. So Anyway, the fascinating social experiment. I hope I hope we won't have to experience it here. Your children will only excel as high as podcaster one day, apparently, if they stay <laughs> out of school too long. Well, that was, we recently were doing um, six word biographies, and I came up with too much school now a podcaster. <laughs> I mean, you get bored, right? Anyway, <laughs> so Dan, I um I did something that I do every once in a while on purpose. I did not go back and look at our correspondence because I thought you're talking, um, you know, not, I don't know if you're doing it for a living or not, but I figured you and I could find something to talk about. So, yeah, I do it for a living probably like you do. Yeah. Right. Which (laughs) which is to say that if one advertiser pulls out, I better go get a job. (laughs) Are you, so first let's start slow, right? Um, what's your connection to, well, introduce yourself and what's your connection to type one? Yeah. So I'm Dan Liebenson. I, Uh, My son, Sam, was diagnosed about five years ago when he was 11, and um, uh, I started listening to your podcast, and I remember thinking, I think Arden and Sam are around the same age, and I remember you saying that, you know, it's been nine years or something like that, and I thought that was an eternity, and, uh, you know, I I, I was never going to figure it all out, and, you know, so, so then I was thinking, here I am five years later, and more or less figured it out, so I thought that would be an interesting conversation between us it certainly would be okay so uh what's your son's name are we gonna say yeah his name is sam sam, sam or dan sam sam sorry. he's sam i'm dan I, yep. I knew you were dan i just thought i got caught in my ear a little bit okay <laughs> so for instance when i tell people my son's name is cole a surprising <laughs> number of them say paul it's a thing that happens so okay so sam's diagnosed tell me again what age he was 11 and this um is five years ago so 20 20- yeah, uh, or I guess almost at this point, almost six years ago. So tw- uh, 2014. 2014. 
Okay. So, all right. So he's, uh, and how old is he today? Yeah. So now he's 16, almost 17. Okay. Yeah. And Arden's 15. She'll be 16 in the summer. So she's probably a good year, year and a half younger than he is. Uh All right, cool. So, um, first question, always huge surprise out of left field or were you one of the families who was like, Oh, it got Sam. We were wondering. wondering (laughs) No, total, total surprise. Uh, There's nobody that we know of in our family that uh, has ever been type one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what's interesting is that our closest friend's daughter was diagnosed with type one about a year before. So we were familiar with it, but the idea that two different kids and two close families are going to be diagnosed a, a year from one another was shocking. So it was like a double shock. Are you in the suburbs of Chicago? Or are you in the city? We are in the city, in the south side near the University of Chicago. Okay, yeah. And and so now you know two people. One of them's your son. Uh, <laughs> other kids, you have another son, obviously. Um, I have a daughter. A, a daughter. son and a daughter. Oh, yeah, yep. two, two teenagers upstairs, not two boys yep. upstairs, right? Yep. And so uh, what what happens first? Like, especially in a big city like that, I'm, I'm interested in the diagnosis in a place where my imagination tells me the healthcare should be pretty top-notch. Yeah, well, first of all, the interesting little story, it was kind of a legendary story in the hospital. It was slightly not exactly what, what actually happened, but the story that was going around was that Sam's little friend diagnosed him because uh, what happened was that he had been going to the bathroom a lot and thirsty and everything. And, and you know, because we had these friends who had just recently been diagnosed with type 1, I had in my head that it could be we should test his blood sugar, who knows, and so we went over to their house for dinner and said, uh, can we borrow your, your blood glucose meter just to test his blood? And, and, um, and we tested his blood, and I think it was something like 495. And um, we were like, and the truth is that we, we should have just gone right to the hospital. We didn't really know that much at that time. So we were like, oh, we'll go in the morning. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I think we borrowed the, the meter and tested him again in the morning, and it was still high. And so we headed for the hospital and, and we live right near the University of Chicago. So, yeah, it's a top notch uh, hospital. There's a children's hospital. There's a, a world famous you know, group of endocrinologists. Later, I want to discuss that even though you're in a place with world famous endocrinologists, it's one thing that they kind of understand the underlying way the disease works. But it's another thing whether they actually know how to help you manage it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that now it's kind of faded into memory, but I think, you know, this sort of team of doctors descended on him and tested all kinds of things and, you know, pretty quickly came back and said, yeah, it's type one. What happened in his life that made you think to ask for the meter? He was, he was going to the bathroom all the time. And subsequently he said that he was thirsty all the time. I don't think we realized that he was thirsty all the time, but I think we were noticing that he was going to the bathroom all the time. And I think that it was just that we had this friend who had been diagnosed a year before. So it was on our minds. I think if we didn't know about her, it probably would have taken a lot longer until we had done something because it it hadn't risen to the level that we have to, something happened and we have to get medical attention. It was just kind of like, well, we go to these folks' house every week. And, you know, so when we're there next time, let's get out the blood glucose meter and just See. Yeah, no kidding. And so he wasn't really complaining about other things. He wasn't experiencing headaches or dizziness or he wasn't that far into it, I guess. I guess. I mean, not that I recall. It's, you know, in retrospect, it's like maybe he was. I, I don't really remember. It certainly hadn't risen to the level of 
of a concern yeah. and he he wasn't having you know any kind of DKA kind of symptoms that we knew of how did he react he was pretty cool about it i mean he he kind of i don't know if it was that he's just pretty cool kid or he was at a particular age but he was just kind of like okay well and or that he had a really close friend but he was like you know all right i'll do i'll do this stuff the thing that he was horrified by was that i was going to come over to school every day until you know we figured it all out to you know test his blood sugar and give him insulin i mean this was before we had the pump and and um you know he that was horrifying to him that his dad was going to come to school every day that was that was the biggest concern well it probably took him years to set up the backstory that you were a foreign correspondent and didn't live at home and you know he probably had a whole big thing worked up that you were you know, pumping all of a sudden like oh here's dan sorry uh, right yeah. he may have <laughs> I know he's. I know I said uh, he was playing for the Bulls uh, twenty years ago, but this is <laughs> right. him. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, no, I, I get that. Like Arden's good with the, um, the me being there when I'm there. They're very infrequently at school. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it's obvious, but you know, not often at all. But yep. I happened to be there yesterday, and uh, we just kind of we were walking down the hall laughing and talking, and we went did what we were going to do and and headed back again. She was. Uh, she put an insulin pump site in and it hurt a little going in and she mentioned it. She goes, that didn't, that wasn't good. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. but it worked really well for like a day and a half. So we didn't think anything of it. And then she's bolusing for lunch. And she said she, uh, she bolused and she left her room. She went to her locker and she's standing in her locker, getting her stuff together and her pod just, you know, errors in the middle of the bolus. Mm-hmm. So she's like, um, she sends me a text. My pod just erred. I'm really hungry. I want to eat. And I was like, okay, so I, I've said this before, I mean, we live literally across the street from the school. So we don't leave a lot of supplies at the school. I'm home working usually. And so, you know, I, I just, I said, oh, I'm right. I'm on my way. It's like, just go to the front office. And I walked in the front office just as she did. And she's got her hand over the pod trying to muffle the the beeping. Uh-huh. And she's just like, hey, take my bag. Cause I'm not taking my hand off of this. It's really loud. It's under my pants and I can't get it off right now. And you know, I need to get somewhere and take care of it. So fine, like we went and did it, but we're walking through the hallway. She's got her hand like awkwardly on her thigh and, you know, we're walking and talking about something completely different other than diabetes and she's laughing and I'm laughing. And I just thought, well, this is incredibly normal to us. You you know, like there's no real weirdness about this at all. We went in, did what we did and she was back on her way again. And and I was home. I I bet I was home 14 minutes after I left my house. It was really, uh. It's really interesting how little it impacted my psychological feelings about the day. And I think for her too. So Yeah, it's like at a certain point it's like, you know, the Navy SEALs or something where you just you know your drill and you go right in, you you're in, you're out. It's fine. In those <laughs> in those early years, um, or those early days, you know, especially when a kid, you know, you're eleven, it's just the idea that your parents gonna show up is is horrifying. Yeah. Now as a junior in high school, it's fine. Yeah. You know, and and also we've finally learned to leave a a box oh. of stuff there. <laughs> so far, I mean, if I lived five minutes farther away, or uh, or I wasn't working from home, we would just pile the stuff up in there. But it was it was good too because it was a weird timing. Like it was before a meal, so then we had to do some kind of you know some juice box math about how much insulin to put in because now there wasn't going to be a pre bolus and she's going to have to eat faster. And like you know, we kind of handled all that stuff and went on our way. You said that thing about the the Navy SEALs, and it made me picture in my head like a. You know, twelve Navy SEALs sitting around eating pizza, drinking beer with a like a little chyron underneath them that says, 
eight minutes since they killed somebody. Like, do you <laughs> mean like they're back home now and just like back to their lives? And you know, an hour uh, hours before that, they were uh, surfacing uh, in the surf, you know, with their night vision on, and now they're home. Right. This is down. this <laughs> is like the opposite where you've saved somebody. Yeah, exactly. It's, my mind. Maybe it's like the fire department. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh-huh. well, we're taught what's going on in the world right now. Made me think of going to get somebody instead of going to help somebody. But um, <laughs> right. Anyway, so he's uh, leaves the hospital with pens, uh, pump. How did that go? Yeah, no, he. he so um, I think I think that because we had these friends that had had been diagnosed a year before, so they kind of had been through the whole series. And by the time Sam was diagnosed, they already had a pump and a Dexcom. And um, so right away, we went in knowing that we should ask for for pens, not just you know, vials of insulin and syringes. And so we came out with pens. And then I think very, very quickly within maybe a month, maybe two, we had him on a pump and a Dexcom. And and the, that was only because we had these friends who knew exactly what we should ask for, had gone to the same hospital, the same endocrinology practice and and knew exactly which doctor is, is free and, and easy prescribing the, the the pump and, you know, exactly what we need to do and, and everything. So we <clears throat> so we kind of had this whole, uh, you know, again, it was kind of like the Navy SEALs, you know, we had this whole we knew exactly what to do. And and that's one of the things that's really stuck with me all along. It's that we we were so lucky that we had these friends that also right if they had been diagnosed, you know, five years ago, they might have forgotten the whole process and right. so but because it was so fresh they could tell us exactly what to do and we just we called it copy paste we just did exactly what they did on, on everything mm-hmm. and it made the process so much smoother and so much easier for sam and and as importantly for us yeah. that for it, it's kind of stuck in 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 my mind and, and it's annoyed me and my wife ever since that that other people don't have that same experience and and it's been frustrating to try to figure out how to give people that experience. Well, what you just said made me consider like my first thought was, you know, every institution should have an advocate, like a third party who comes and chats with you and explains stuff to you and, and tries to point you in a direction that they feel like you're comfortable with. And then I thought, why is this? Why isn't the staff the advocate? And that like, so there's a disconnect there somehow, like, but I just think it's, you know, you had that one person, why couldn't that one person just exist in a off on a side office, you know, doing something else and waiting for somebody to be diagnosed with type one. That seems strange. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I think it has to do with liability because it might also have to do with experience, you know, and that people don't quite know, the staff doesn't quite know what people are thinking or what they need or, or, or something. It's, hard, it's a little hard to believe. I mean, I think they have a lot of experience. They, they know that. But I, I think that because we've tried to even get the hospital to start a program where, you know, a newly diagnosed person, a family, you know, obviously if they only if they agree to it, if they sign whatever HIPAA waivers or whatever, but that a family could come in and and help them, you know, and that, that we could come in or our son could come in and, and just give them some tips and tell them that they're not alone. And, and everything, by the way, that that for me, the Juicebox podcast did in those early years, but that we could do that in person. And they've been very slow or really not at all uh, able to to make that happen. And they haven't really said why, but I suspect that it has to do with liability issues. And 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 they're not necessarily wrong in that. Right. Because I think about the advice that I give people when there's a rare opportunity for me to give somebody advice. And I know everything on the Juicebox podcast is not medical advice or otherwise. Um, But, you know, and that's that's also true when I 
talk to people independently. But, you know, I have all kinds of specific tips on how to figure out the basil and how to figure out the bolus and all of that stuff. And I think that if some random parent came in and gave somebody that advice under the auspices of the hospital and then something went wrong, there's going to be liability issues. So so I kind of get why they don't do it. But on the other hand, it, 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 it there seems to be like there should be some some middle ground or yeah. something, some way to get advice. Well, I think that, I mean, you hit on a lot of good points. Like, I do think it's it's the idea that they don't want to be culpable on any like bad decisions that get made. I think that if you, all you need to know is that there are a lot of medical institutions around the country and probably, you know, around the world who, when you somebody there will tell you, Hey, you should listen to this podcast. Yeah. Which I think right. is their way of saying, I know you're going to hear what you need to hear there. And yet I'm not telling it to you, but you, but then again, they, if they direct you to it, even like, like how does it's all just sort of, posturing and bullshit if i'm being I, in my don't well, i'm gonna have to beep that which just gave me something <laughs> extra to do while we're we're editing but I, that's what it is really right it's just it's it's the idea that everything's so confusing that you can't give anybody targeted uh advice but i don't believe that's true i think if people understand the basic stuff like the core value stuff then they can build out from it i think where the institutions fall short maybe where the podcast doesn't and Interestingly enough, the podcast was only able to find its way because I wasn't rushed, right? Like I was taking, mm -hmm. taking my time kind of building out a narrative is that there are these core things. Like as much as we like to say your diabetes may vary and it's definitely going to be different for you than it is for him. There are some basic concepts that are not different for everybody. They are all exactly the same. And and why not start them with those at the very least? You, you, right. You know? Yeah. And there's some some things that. I think also just require a little bit more time to spend with somebody than the endo office really, I think is able to, right? They just have mm -hmm. a lot of patience and they don't have that amount of time. And, and one thing that as a parent volunteer, you're happy to do is, you know, I'm not, I'm not meeting with all the patients. I'm just meeting with some of them and I could spend a lot more time counseling them and emailing them and going back and forth with them. And like, so for example, there was one uh, family that we know that was diagnosed relatively recently. And we really tried to do what our friends had done for us. And we really pushed them to get on a, on a pump quickly. And they did. And then, you know, I checked in with them a couple months later, you know, how are things going? And she, they were expressing a lot of frustration that he was still always over 300 or whatever. And, um, you know, they had an endo appointment coming up in a couple of weeks and then they would you know, ask them what to do and they would make some adjustments. But, you know, they were being so conservative. And I said, well, just double the amount of insulin that you're using. It's still not going to, you know, it's going to go maybe to 200. You know, you're not going to go low. Don't worry about it. Like at this level, if you use twice as much insulin as you're using, my prediction is that you're just going to float around 200 rather than 300. So try it. Let nothing, you know, and, and you're on a Dexcom. So you're going to see if something's going wrong. You know, like, why not just fool around with it. And they had no capacity to do that. You know, nobody had told them you could do that. They had sort of put the fear of God into them, you know, that a little mistake was, could be disastrous. And I'm like, you know, a big mistake could be disastrous. But if you're just adding a little bit more insulin to sort of see what happens and you're, you're we're talking about 300 and you're, you're having another unit, like nothing bad is going to happen and you're going to start to get some experience. And, and people just have no, nobody tells them that and nobody coaches them through that. It's fascinating to watch people. So I, I talk to a fair amount of people privately, and I'll tell you, going back to what you said, 
um, a minute ago, when I speak to you privately, if I ever speak to you privately, the first thing I'm going to say to you is, look, I'm not a doctor. This is an advice. I know you've heard the podcast and I might seem like an entity to you, but I am a person. I'm mm-hmm. just the father of a kid with type 1 diabetes, you know, maybe no differently than you are. If I, in the course of sharing any of my personal narrative here with you on the phone today, say something that you misunderstand or that leads to like, you know, the injury or death of somebody, it's not my fault. We <laughs> Are we okay with that? Which is a weird way to start a, co- a phone call with a person you've never met before, y- you know, but, but in order to sit down and really talk to them and share kind of the breadth of what they need to understand, you're going to have to say a lot and a lot can get confusing sometimes, which is why I always tell them, look, just please don't, let's not go into detail here. You know, if your blood sugar is high, you probably need more insulin. You know, this Mm -hmm. episode of the podcast will probably cover that. You know, try this, go there, listen to this, um, you know, be a little more aggressive, trust yourself more, like very common ideas. It's so funny when you were just talking, you were, you were mimicking, like I could think of episodes of the podcast that you were mimicking while you were talking. And I felt incredibly proud. I was, (laughs) I thought this is really nice. Like I'm certain you could have come and maybe you did come to what you just said completely on your own, but there was like certain phrasing you used where I was like, Oh, I've said those words. I was like, that's really cool that it, that it found you in Chicago. You you know what I mean? Like, and that it's, and that you're trying to find other people with it. The best I can tell you is that I don't know if there's a way to cover people one-on-one because there's always a concern that pops into people's minds that stops them from saying fully what they mean to say, or the staff's not trained as well as they could be, or they don't live with diabetes or have it. And so they never know the right things to say. I think at this point, you can put me in a situation with a person and I sort of instinctively remember to say the things that need to be said. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult sometimes because sometimes if you leave out one certain little part, everything else does get messed up. And then you run into what you were talking about where people's confidence is just very low and they yep. don't want to make any adjustments, even when they are incredibly common sense adjustments. I mean, honestly, your blood sugar is 300. I wish it was lower. Insulin makes your blood sugar go down. Try more insulin wasn't the first thing they did. Yeah, but but I think what they're afraid of is that if I if my insulin is like I, I understand that if my blood sugar is too high, I should try more insulin. But the fear is, but what if I have too much? And and I think that the explanation is initially so just have a little, which is definitely going to be less than any amount that would cause a disaster. Right. Especially if you have a Dexcom and you can actually watch it happening. Yeah. So so it's like yeah. You know, if you're at 300, if my son is at 300, you know, stable, right, I'm going to give him like four or five units mm-hmm. to get to get him down to 100. But you, new newly diagnosed person, just give two units and see what happens, right? That is not going to go low. And that is only going to start to give you a little bit of experience seeing what insulin does. But people have been made to be afraid of even that. And that that's the part that that I feel like I'm trying to break through to folks and say, you know, yeah, don't do things that, you know, yes, I should give the whole caveat that you just did about, right, if anything bad happens and I don't want to be responsible. But I'm trying to give you advice that almost certainly can't even make anything truly bad happen. It's just so so it's just to get you away from the fear of giving a little bit more and seeing what happens or playing with the basal rates a little bit on your pump, you know, and not waiting three months until your next endo appointment. Yeah. I have to tell you the amount of times that I hear the the like the 
duh, I don't know, is it the doh? Like the, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't think of that sound in the silence in people's conversations is is fascinating. I, I spoke to somebody yesterday who I've been talking to on and off for a really long time. And um, they contacted me and they was like, hey, my, my you know, we, we're using way too much bolus insulin and hardly any basal insulin. And when I, you know, I said, is it this? No. Is it that? No. And I went to the third thing. She says, oh, that's probably it. And then you could hear in her voice, she went, oh, okay. I, I should have known that. Like, do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like that moment where it's just like, how did I not see it? But I think that when you're in it, it's hard to see. Yeah. I think, and that's for most people. Like, like there, it, for most people, and I really mean this, and I say it every once in a while, but you're living your life. You're doing things. And those things are, you know, from emptying the waste paper basket in the bathroom to dusting something that needs to be dusted, grocery shopping, going to work, cutting your lawn, you know, getting the mail, paying your bills, all these crazy amounts of things that you do. And you really do need to step back from diabetes, let everything else go away and look at it. I don't think most people have that kind of time. You, you know, like, I think that's, that's just a truth about life. Like there's not a ton of time for stuff. And now all of a sudden you're putting in this thing that kind of needs you to be, you know, uh, a little retrospective, a little, a little, a little forward looking, you know, and, and you got to make a leap. You got to go against what the doctor might've told you for a second in your head. So you can find the answer. I don't know who's got that kind of time, you know? Yeah. Well, so one of the things that inspired me to reach out to you to was that this, this other family that, that we sort of casually knew, I mean, we, we didn't really know them very well, but they were basically friends of friends and their son was diagnosed and, and at first, uh, we immediately reached out and said, anything that we can do, um, we'll, we'd be happy to. And, and they were reluctant. They didn't want to impose on our time. The kid was kind of concerned, uh, you know, didn't, didn't really, you know, was, what the kid I think was also around 11 or 12 or actually maybe even 14 and was very self-conscious about it and didn't really want to be overly involved. And so there was a while where we just kind of reached out every once in a while and, um, said, how are you doing? But at a certain point, they got in touch with me and said, it's just not going well. You know, we're, we're, he's constantly super high and we can't figure it out. And, and I said, well, let me sit down with you and try to figure it out. And, and there, by the way, like there, I'm sure, you know, that, that most of what I know I've gotten from the juice box podcast and from our friends that, that were a year ahead of us, you know, that very little actual practical understanding of how to manage and how to do pump settings and everything have I actually gotten from the endo office. So I wonder if what I've got comes directly from the juice box podcast, or I've sort of made it up based on that. But I, I ended up figuring out what, what was kind of a three-step process that worked. And I was so excited that, you know, I had helped somebody that I kind of wanted to have a conversation with you about what it looks like when you can actually help somebody and how we might be able to amplify that in the world. Cool. Um, so I don't know if, he, I mean, so here's, here's, I don't know if this is, this is definitely should have the caveat and anything you hear on the juice box podcast is not advice medical or otherwise, but I'm curious what you think about this three-step process that I came up with and whether it's something that you've been advocating as well. I would love so, to hear. Okay. So the first step I said was at night, get, find a basal rate that keeps you stable at night. Right. Because at night you're not doing anything. So so if you can stay stable at night at any number at 400 at 300, it doesn't matter. As long as you're staying stable at night, you have a, a decent place to start in terms of a basal rate. 
and just set that basal rate for the whole day. You know, obviously you're going to have to change it down the road in the daytime, but like that's a basic beginning point for a basal rate. At the point at which you have that stable basal rate, now play around with the correction factor to try to bring it down from that stable number. So let's say it's 300 at night, you know, figure out, well, if I give one unit, where does that take me? Ideally, it should still be stable because you've got the basal rate right. And over time, you can figure out what the correction factor needs to be in order to, you know, and, and, and you know, what amount of uh, what number BG is going to go down based on how much insulin you give. So now you've got those two variables. And then the third one, once you have those two figured out, it's just to figure out the mealtime bolus. And again, you do that through experimentation, trial and error, just just keep changing the numbers and see at what point you you kind of get back to stable within two or three hours, whatever your your goal is. You know, and then you pretty much have it. And the problem with doing that through the endo is that they're only doing it every three months. They're doing they're they're moving all the variables at the same time. They're trying to make their best guess on how to change things. And that's not how you can really get get these adjustments really quickly. You have to change them every week or every few days. And if you have no no basis, no methodology for for knowing how to even go about the process of figuring out that out, then you can't do it. So you know that that was and 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 so I kind of coached this family through that process. And within not very long at all, like two weeks, they were from a situation where they were you know. At 300, you know, 300 to 400, it would be a normal blood sugar at all times to a situation where they're now, you know, between 100 and 200 or something like that. Yeah. And that's within a couple of weeks. And, and, you know, this was months and months and months after having been diagnosed. So the endos were working on this, you know, for a long time. Though I'm not saying, you know, we're better than the endos, but I'm saying that there's a, there's a way of coaching somebody through this that I think is really beyond the capacity of the endos. And I understand that it's, in terms of liability, problematic, but yet here are all these people going around without a real understanding of how to manage diabetes, and they kind of never will get it. Well, I think, first of all, just your willingness and and desire to be helpful to other people is really, it's lovely to see. And I think that the idea of liability is interesting because, you know, what did you really tell them? You told them, you probably need, you know, more insulin to bring their blood sugar down. Here's a good place to start. I think here's what, here's what worked for me. And it, and then it works for them. And then you were um, uncomfortable saying that you knew better than the endocrinologist, but you did in this story. So uh, it's, 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 we all get caught on trying to think of what the word um, I, I want, but it's, it's, you know, you didn't want to say, and you're not the only one, by the way, everyone comes on here and says something about their doctor and then goes, but I, I, I love my doctor. They always start with, I love my doctor. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like saying, you know, I don't, my wife's a lovely woman. I, you know, <laughs> now, you know, she does sleep with a couple of guys behind my back, but you know, she's so nice to the kids. It, you know, like, like, I don't like, right. sometimes we're always like qualifying, I guess. Like, and I get that. Like, I don't, I mean, I've said on here a number of times, you know, my endos are terrific. I mean, meanwhile, they're really great people, but I mean, I really only see them for about an hour a year, so I don't know how terrific they are or aren't. You, you know what I mean? Like, they, they're good to me. They, we don't go in there and have problems. I don't know what would happen if I walked in there and I was like, hey, my blood sugar's 400 and I don't know what to do. Maybe I wouldn't think they were terrific. Maybe, I, right. maybe, maybe that would be unfair. I don't know. Well, think about it this way. Like, if you, have, if you, have, um, if you need a, a psychiatrist or something, you, you go every week or more often than every week mm. to try to get that dealt with. 
Whereas this is just as threatening as that and just as as just as curable as that, if not more so. And what would it look like if the health healthcare system allowed you to go every week to a diabetes educator or some or someone until you kind of had a good understanding of it and, and really got how to do it on your own? Like, why is the system set up that you go every three months? It's crazy. And it's not it's not a recipe for really learning how to manage the, a, a totally manageable disease on your own. Well, I just had a conversation with somebody a few days ago, and I'm pretty sure I can't tell you who it is. So let's just say it's a person that I tangentially do business with through the podcast and that they're <laughs> in the position perhaps of helping people and trying to figure out how to help more people. And we had this exact conversation. So hold on one second. Arden is texting me. She's 81 diagonal down. She had a big muffin this morning and we, <laughs> and we killed it. And, uh, we killed a little bit of a spike pretty easily. Wait, hold on. But the end of the, uh, the end of the attack is, uh, is not going away. <laughs> yep. So she's going to take in a little sugar. And I said to her, do you have a couple like candies with you? And she goes, I don't know. Do I? She's asking me. And I'm like, I don't know. Look. And she goes, oh, I do. So, uh, maybe we maybe we should talk about teenager executive functioning yeah. later in the conversation. So anyway, I'm talking to this person and they are asking me my story about, you know, how to you know, how have I seen the podcast grow and what have I seen it do for people? Because I I think I wear a couple of different hats in this. Like I'm the the nice guy that comes on and like talks to you and I am the person who understands how to do the stuff and I also put out episodes in ways where I, I think they're you know poignant in times based on other ones trying to build a narrative. There's a lot I'm doing probably that I do a good job of coming off like I'm not doing. Like I'm like, oh, I'm just silly me making this silly podcast, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but at the same time, you know, I feel like I've built a way to help people. Yep. That that didn't exist in in the past. Yeah. And so. Um, so this person is trying to say, how do we help more people? And I'm like, man, that's my, that's like the underlying question behind every day of my life. Like, you know, if it reaches, uh, you know, if the podcast reaches 5,000 people today, I always wonder like, why couldn't it reach like 50,000 people and not for the podcast, although that would be nice. I'm talking about like, you know, if it's really working for a large portion of the people who are listening, I wish it could reach more people. Yep. And if it could how? And then they started talking about that they had a network and that maybe they could be pushing out the podcast to the network. And then if they did that, which episodes would you want to send? And, and we were like having that whole conversation. So that thing you're thinking about, I is very cool that you're thinking about it. I'm thinking about it too. I'm sure other people are as well. Like, how do you give somebody like what in the end becomes like a, you know, like a, a card hanging on their refrigerator that's just like, right. you know, this, 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 and this. Have you done these things today? These are the things to do until it becomes commonplace. But do those steps need greater explanation? And I believe they do. Because what, yeah, and, you got, and hand-holding. Of course, yeah, yeah. And they need to be able to come back to it or walk away from it. That whole thing, let me grab a drink. And so what you said a while ago about, you know, get your overnight basil right, I agree with, and I think that's a great place to start. I also think that you said something about doesn't matter if it's three or 400 there. I take, um, exception a little bit. Like I would, I'm only talking I, about for a week or two. I know you are. And I didn't mean it like that. I meant that what if someone gets it stable at 400 and then decides 
I'm going to go to insulin to carb ratio now and doesn't follow through on the first step you gave him, which was get it right, then get it down, then go to insulin to carb ratio. Because if they do that, then right. take that second step without the first step being complete, it, they'll get thrown into a tailspin. They won't understand anything that's happening in front of them. And so you need somebody to keep checking in. Like you need a, you know, if that, then this flow chart that's, um, foolproof and the problem is that nothing's foolproof because in the end the user is the biggest linchpin and the biggest fool yeah, yeah well and that's i didn't say that and <laughs> i don't know what you're saying but yes yeah sometimes we are the problem like i'm the problem in my house when i don't get something fixed because I, I i look at something and then i skip over the biggest part if you listen to pharmaceutical companies they'll tell you one of the biggest problems they have with medications are that people don't take them Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, psychological, uh, psychotropic drugs, like, you know, stuff that helps you with depression or, or I might've just used the wrong word there, but de- depression drugs, the biggest problem with depression drugs are people who are depressed, take them, they stop feeling depressed. And their first consideration after they don't feel depressed anymore is, Oh, I don't need the medicine anymore. Right. Skipping over the idea that the medication is really probably the reason they don't feel depressed anymore. And so when you can't trust the user, then how do you know what's happening? And so for me, the best I've come up with so far is that the podcast exists in the world. And if you hear it the way it's delivered and you follow through on it the way I think it's, and I'm going to use the word manipulating, but I don't mean manipulating, but in the way that it's manipulating you to follow through and the way that it's directing you, if that happens to hit you right, then most of my correspondence tells me, your A1C is going to drop a couple of points. It's going to get down into the sixes. You can make it lower if you want. You're going to have these tools at your disposal that work for you. And you'll just kind of effortlessly know how to use them at some point. And then you'll yep. go, go off on your way. I have not found a better way yet. If there is a better way, I don't know it. But I would just tell you that this podcast didn't exist five years ago. Yeah. And, and that five years ago, what happened to people was they just decided that a high blood sugar was the best they could do and they'd move on. And then there was actually a support system built in the community to tell you that that's okay. Yep. And that's going away now. And I have to tell you, I feel good about that. I don't want people running around shaming others and going, you, you can't have a 300 blood sugar. That's wrong. I want them coming in and going, Hey, I think I know how you could probably get that a little closer to where you want it to be. And I'm seeing that. And, and I'm incredibly proud of that. I might be prouder of the shift in how people talk to each other than I am in the shift of their A1Cs and their lesser variability. So, yeah. I, you know. And I think you should be because I mean, as I think about it, right. I mean, the only reason that I was able to counsel these folks was because I had been counseled by you and, um, and I think it's really interesting to think about, right, I'm, I'm biased because I'm also a podcaster, but I, I think that it's fascinating to think about the power of whether it's a podcast or a blog or the internet or, or all these tools that we now have, which is basically now allowing regular people. I mean, even, even the, what's it called? The, the, the software that, uh, you know, creates the, the closed loop system that people, regular people put together. Oh, um, loop. Yeah, loop. So, so all of these things, right. So, so the technology is allowed people to create all these all these ways of basically sharing things with one another and on the one hand that's really great and uh, and I'm thrilled and you should be proud and it's so wonderful that we have this capacity but but basically what it's giving us is the capacity to go around the medical system 
the healthcare system, as opposed to somehow the healthcare system being able to actually, you know, care for people properly. Because I worry about the people, right? Because that's a, I'm frustrated like you about my podcast, right? I know for every person who listens, there's 10 people who I know would love it, but haven't heard about it. Like, what about all the people that are diagnosed with, with type one that don't listen to podcasts or that don't ever hear about it because in their community, there isn't a first person who, you know, I'm in my community, I'm always telling people listen to the juice box podcast, but what about in a place where there isn't somebody like that, you know? And, and it's like, I've heard you talk about also that we're all essentially running a, a, a warehouse in our homes for the healthcare, you know, for the diabetes supply industry, um, you know, for our insurance, you know, that we all have a huge stockpile of, of stuff, you know, it's like the whole system is, is broken. And I think that we're all finding these ways of, doing our best to try to help one another. But it's frustrating because, you know, the, the, to some extent, the folks who are really in the position to, to make those tools more widely available don't or can't do it. And, you know, I don't know exactly, again, if it's because of their concerns about liability or just their sense that that's not how we do things. But I wonder how we can break through that. Yeah, there's a, a ton of like, you know, sayings around change right um and how it happens and all i can tell you is what i've seen the podcast accomplish right isn't just the podcast it's it's the blog so mm-hmm. so this goes back to 2007 and in 2007 diabetes blogging was very much in my opinion, about telling people, look, this is what happens to me. Some of it's not good. You shouldn't feel self-conscious about it. We're not alone. Amazing message. Really fantastic message. Some people have a lot of success with that message. And that with, excuse me, a lot of people, there are some people who have a lot of success delivering that message. And therefore they get stuck in that being their quote unquote business. They're in the business of delivering this shit hard, excuse me, this stuff is hard. And I'm not always great at it. You don't always have to be great at it. There's a very uplifting, beautiful, psychological way of coming at it. And before tech Dexcom or, you know, reliable pumps and, and all the things that kind of exist now, that maybe was the best you could hope for. And it was probably what that segment of time needed as far as a message went. The problem is, is that when some people started making money delivering that message, that was their brand. So they stayed into it. And then the technology changed and people like me came in and had a different experience living with diabetes or loving somebody living with diabetes. And even that, look what I just felt like I had to say. I know I don't have diabetes. Everyone listening to this show knows I don't have diabetes, but I still feel compelled to make sure you know I'm not talking about myself because there are some old time bloggers who exist who, because of their writings, I know that pisses them off. <laughs> and then if I go find a 30 year old who's had diabetes for three days and talk to them, they don't care if I talk like that. They understand I'm trying to get out a message and I'm trying to do it quickly. And I think that's also important. I think that the writing I used to see would go on for six and 700 words. And when you really read of it, when you really read it, two thirds of it was just apologizing for itself. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or saying, Um, you know, they knew some of those people knew they needed more insulin, but they spent more time explaining that they shouldn't be telling you that and making you scared of the idea through that explanation that they never got around to telling you how to do it. I saw, (laughs) I still saw one 
This is a person who is absolutely lovely. The other day, I saw them post something about their health, and I'm like, my God, this person's first thought when they reach to people is still, let me say something scary about diabetes and then say it's going to be okay. Like, you must know more about it than this by now. How is it that this is still your explanation? And Dan, you're catching me on a day where I was already a little irritated because um, I see a lot of people setting up false narratives so that they can write about them. And I don't know if they know their false narratives or if that's their experience. But today, it's 2019. It's almost 2020. And the people who are coming into having diabetes right now don't think like that anymore. And and it's I'm, it's lovely that they don't have to think that way, that they have this different technology. But these are the people who are going to start the flood of how things are spoken about in the future. Now, I do my best to stick with the time. I, I really try to move along because I think it's best for my daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and and hopefully I can continue to do that here. Uh, but if not, then some of these other people who have come in, God willing, some of them will realize that this is not about getting likes on their Instagram picture and figure out a way to really help people and, and keep this moving or else this will die out. And then this ability to help people circumvent this system that changes much too slowly it could disappear along with it. And I'm not saying I'm the only one doing it well. Um, you know, and I guess it's wrong of me to say that I think I'm doing it well. I think I am. But um, but I'm sure there are other people doing it well, too, or, or serving segments of problems that I don't get to. Um, but the other people who are just like, look how pretty I am. I have diabetes, too. Like my picture. That's great. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I mean, it, it, okay, it'll help them feel more comfortable showing you their pump. That's great. Now what? Do something else. Like, you've got all this influence. What are you going to do with it? And then they end up disappearing. I'll tell you right now, if you're listening to this right now and you have a lot of influence on a platform like Instagram, wait 12 months and tell me if you still do. <laughs> because if you're not actively trying to help people, then someone else will just come on whose butt looks better with an insulin pump on it and then you'll be gone. So. Right, right. Because I mean, the truth is that that although I'm expressing frustration at the healthcare industry and 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 the doctors' offices, the truth is that in our times, right, people who are diagnosed with diabetes, I assume, all of them come home and Google, you know, just diagnosed with type one diabetes. What should I do? Right. And if the first thing that came up was the Juice Box podcast then it would be a different world, you know, then it would be fine. I mean, then, you know, I'd still rather that the doctor told you about it, but if you can find it immediately and you can sort of figure out or connect with the community very quickly and, and, and that helps you, then great. But if, like you say, the first things that you come up with are people with, you know, bedazzled, uh, Omnipods, that's not going to serve that, that need. The, uh, the, the, um, ex the example I use in private company is always, uh, one that I, I don't think I could use here, but there's a person who has uh, a spectacular um, uh, looking, I don't know how to say it, buttocks, and uh, they don't appear to care to cover it that much. And then everyone's like, they're a diabetes influence. I'm like, that's a person with a great butt who happens to have diabetes, but I see what you think is going on here and that's not what's happening. And some people see it. As a matter of fact, a lot of people see it. But there are also places where they're scared to ignore it because they think the likes are influence. Mm. And I hate the word influence. I'm not an influencer. I would never want to be called an influencer. I'm not trying to be an influencer. I am saying what I'm saying. You can do whatever you want with it. 
It doesn't matter. You could take it, leave it anywhere in between those ideas. Do what you did. Hear some stuff and make an amalgam of it for yourself. As a matter of fact, that's my expectation. Like I hope, I don't imagine that there are people out there beyond in the beginning writing down, Scott said this and this and this, and now I'm going to follow these steps. I'm hoping that it's opening their minds to a different way to use their insulin and then they can make that work in their own lives. Well, I'm curious what you think about in the connection of the bedazzled uh, omnipods and all of that, you know, stuff about people displaying them proudly. I mean, there is that is a segue to something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And and I, may, I imagine maybe you are. And, and also when I wrote you, right, I was saying that, like, right, I listened to the Juicebox podcast religiously for the first two years. And then once I figured it out, I listened to it occasionally for just kind of to feel a sense of connection. I listen to it when there's a specific guest from Dexcom or from Omnipod on. But I listen to it less. But now it's on my mind again in a new way because I'm getting ready for the time when Sam's going to go off to college. And so there's this new concern that is um, not, I've just been diagnosed with type one, what do I do? But I've, I'm now getting close to the point where, you know, he's going to fly away from the nest. And have I set him up to be able to do this on his own? Right? I feel like I've become masterful at managing his diabetes, but he has not become masterful at managing his diabetes. Sure. And I think there, there are two elements of that, right? One, the one that, that the influencers, you know, is positive for is that I, I do think that Sam and and our friend who was diagnosed a year before him, they don't have any shame at all about having diabetes. They don't have they're not embarrassed for their omnipods to show. They're both dancers and there are these ama- amazing pictures of them in performances with their omnipods obviously clear, you know, and um and that's amazing. And and then I met this other kid recently who was recently diagnosed and he is just trying to hide it and he's really nervous about anybody finding out that he has diabetes. And, and we keep telling him, don't worry, nobody's going to care. Kids these days are so accepting, but, but he's intensely focused on that. So if that had been a kid that was just about to go to college, that would be a serious problem because he would probably not manage it well because he's trying to hide it. So at least that problem is not Sam's, but Sam's problem is that he, um, is that he's pretty good at managing it on his own. But for example, he, like most teenagers, is a very heavy sleeper. And I have this worry that, you know, he's going to be off in college on his own and he's going to go low at night and he's not going to not going to hear it. And ha- how do I set him up to to be ready to go off to college on his own in light of that? You know, and then in, in general, you know, does he understand well enough how to manage it when he's awake so that he'll still have a relatively low A1C? I'm I'm a little worried about that. I'm I'm a little less. I, I think he has a basic sense of it, but um, but I but I'm still wondering. You know, how can I get him, or what what should I be doing over the next year, year and a half to to fully get him to understand how to manage all these elements on his own? Where the fact is that he's actually not all that interested in it. Yeah, um, which I think is normal. I have two two thoughts. My first one was, and I just want to make sure I was clear about. I do think it's really important that somebody's out there showing themselves with their pumps and their CGMs, and then because it has that great effect on other people. Like, I'm not hiding. You don't need to hide. It's a good feeling, right? I'm saying once you have all these people following you, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe do something more with it than that. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that was that was my first thought there. My second thought is bigger on the idea of passing. We always talk about passing care, right? Like because it's funny. You learned a particular skill. You learned how to be the father of a kid with type 1 diabetes. Right. That's what you know how to do. 
you don't know how to have type one diabetes, right? Right, and and your son is, and my daughter, and everyone else who's born, you know, diagnosed prior to leaving home, is going to go from being a person who's managed off into being a person who's managing, right? Their their jobs yep. are going to change, and in this segment of life that says, I don't sleep, you know, I sleep tight and I don't wake up, and because they don't have, you know, why do you pop up? And, and your son doesn't. Why do I wake up and Arden doesn't? Well, I have the parenting thing, right? Like I've, it's my responsibility not to let everybody die. Like that's, <laughs> that, that's how it feels inside. Have a baby, see how it feels. It's terrible. You, you know what yep. I mean? Like you immediately yep. are like, okay, well, I'll just eat whatever and get cancer and die. But as long as the kids are okay, everything will be fine. And I'll just leave them to my brother. And like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, you go right into like this defensive of life mode. Right. They don't have that. They don't know to be scared. They didn't have the, you know, your, my daughter wasn't, was, wasn't 30 the day I thought I lost her in a Macy's. You, you, mm. know, you know what I mean? Like, like if she was there, she'd wake up when that alarm went off too. Like that, that mm-hmm. kind of feeling. So they don't have that part. So I always maintain, you hear me say it, that I think being around it is a, is a lot of a lesson and that they're going to transition away and then they're going to have their own experiences that aren't with us, and then they're going to figure out how to manage them. Now, here's the funny thing we never talk about. Much like um, much like side effects of diabetes that we don't talk about and side effects of insulin, everybody kind of keeps quiet. And nobody says the stuff they don't want to talk about. The truth is this. Every person isn't a shining example of perfection, right? And, and as, as a matter of fact, probably no one is. But we're all different varying degrees of it. You, you know, like some people end up being more responsible than other people. Some people end up, you know, being less. Some people work really hard. Some people don't work very hard at all. Uh, some people care about their health. Some people don't. Some people are somewhere in the middle. You, you know, like like we all end up being different people. But all of us who have kids with type 1 diabetes are trying to figure out how to turn each and every one of them into a guest that you've heard on the show who just went out into the world and was like, I'm going to take care of this and just did a perfect job of it and it's been going along great for 10 years. That's not going to be all of our kids. And so because I think that's impossible to create, I think it's most important to look at your child and think, all right, this is who they are and this is the kind of help they're going to need getting through. And I take very seriously the idea that I don't believe there's a cutoff date for when your kid just doesn't need your help anymore with diabetes. I saw someone the other day who, again, thinks of themselves as an influencer in this space you know, showing off their kids 220 blood sugar and saying, oh, they're taking care of it on their own. They're learning. And I thought, you've been posting that for three years now. <laughs> like, like, I don't think they're learning. You, you know what I mean? Or it's just, it's the same story for, for years and years and years. And that person's decided to take the tactic of kids need to learn. They'll figure it out. And that's what I'm going to promote. And I've heard people promote the, my kid was diagnosed years ago, we didn't have all this technology, and look, they're fine. And then that's the idea they promote. Here's the idea I'm promoting. Figure out who your kid is and support them in a way that is reasonable to what their needs are. And that that might go on beyond when they leave to go to college. That's it. Like That's it. There are some things I haven't heard from my son twice about. And there are some things he still needs help with. And so... I sit back until he needs something, and then I don't do anything differently now than I did then. You know, I'm like, hey, you all right with this? And, you know, have you considered this? 
And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. And that's it. Because he wants, <laughs> he wants the help. He doesn't want to ask for the help. He doesn't, right. want, he doesn't want to feel like he needs it. You can't make them feel like they need the help. You can't, you can't do that thing where you martyr yourself. You, you know, you can't always be like, oh, I'll take care of it. Yep. I'll tell you, you know, like it, all the drama has got to go away. You just got to, just got to do the things you need to do. You, you know what I mean? It's like tending to yeah. a field. It, it, there's I mean, no, I, I, nothing sexy about getting a tomato to grow, but if you just do all the things you're supposed to do, it pops right out of the ground. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that there are probably two dimensions of it, right? The one is the, the not dying part. And then the other is the excelling part. Right. And, um, on the not dying, you know, it's like, um, so he went off to a, uh, a camp for six weeks for debate this year. And actually it wasn't too far from our house. So if there was an emergency, so that, you know, we could get there, but, I did a lot of research and found this thing that is really meant for deaf people who have babies, you know, and, and the idea is that when the baby cries, the bed shakes because it's like a big vibrating disc that goes under the mattress or under the pillow. Yeah. So so I got him that thing and, you know, he really didn't want to use it, but I, he reluctantly, you know, we told him that he had to or he couldn't go to camp. And um, <laughs> and, and, and I think that he used, I think that he used it. It, it. The truth is that the year before we had had to call the, the dorm people at least twice during the, the summer because he was going low and, and we were calling him and he wouldn't answer the phone. And so, you know, we had to send them up to wake him up and, and do something. Whereas this year we didn't have to do that at all. So I'm assuming that meant that the bed shaker worked. And so I'm kind of planning to send him off to college with this bed shaker. Um, what's interesting is that when he came back from camp and we said, Hey, that bed shaker worked so well, you know, maybe you should just use it all year. He, he was like, no way. And we were like, well, why should I have to wake up when the alarm goes off? And he said, you're my parent. That's your job, you know, in a really sweet way. But, you know, he meant it. And I kind of was like, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm willing to do that. Um, but, you know, there's this question of, of okay, the, the, the not dying part is there. Am I going to feel good sending him off to college somewhere far away, knowing that at least he's going to wake up in the middle of the night if he's going low? And you know, is, 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 has his executive functioning got good enough that he always makes sure that he leaves the house at least with, uh, you know, a, a candy bag or something that so that, again, if there's an emergency, he's able to, to handle it. Um, or, or, you know, and then, Dan, yeah. Or, Dan, will he find a different way? Yeah, you, you know but will I mean? he find some way? Yeah, yeah his way. Right. And I think yeah. that's, that's the hope, right? You just don't want him to, you don't want him to be shaken on the ground before he right. figures it out. And exactly. then there are probably some adults listening right now who are thinking, man, you need something to go wrong so that you can figure it out. You like make right. me, and, right. and some people will, and some people won't. There are some people listening right now who are just ultra, like, you know, type a super risk, you know, resilient, always like, I'm going to do the right thing. And they're just going to do the right thing right out the door. And there are going to be some people who have to bump into a bad moment to figure it out. And everywhere in between, like, I, again, I think it's a bit of a, I, a lot of people ask me, and in my opinion, there's no answer, right? There, the, there's no answer to the idea of like, what do I need to do to get my kid ready? If you really want to know what you need to do in the next year, every pump company in the world is going to have a closed loop system, figure out which one you like the best. I'm getting the Omnipod horizon and hopefully, yeah, and hopefully that'll keep my daughter from having a crazy low while she's away until she can figure out diabetes. But you know yep. what? Some kid is going to get on that system and it's going to make them lazy. And they're just yep. going to think, oh, well, I don't have to pay attention to it. And some kid's going to see it as a great, we're all incredibly different. If we were all the same, 
none of us would be able to get a job because we'd all be absolutely fantastic. You, you know what I mean? There'd be a, every job interview would be a million people lined up who were all perfect. And that's just not who we are. So, you know, you, you can't shoot for someone else's idea of perfect. You have to figure out who you are and then make your stuff work within who you are. And I think that's got to be your focus moving forward. Now, you'll find a way to do it. The bed shaking thing's hilarious um, <laughs> and brilliant, by the way. And it's cool that it got you through that moment. And and if if your son ends up having a problem where he doesn't wake up forever, it might be something he might happily put under his mattress one day. And and maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just make a joke, you know, the first time he's with a girl and like my dad used to try to shake this bed with the thing, but look how we just shook it. <laughs> Who knows? And that's weird to think about Dan because he's your son, but that's going to happen too when he leaves. By the way, there'll be an After Dark series coming up about sex <laughs> and, uh, and marijuana smoking too. Uh, but, but, um, but I think that it's just, it's just a fool's, a bit of a fool's errand to try to predict the future. And, and I, and I, and I don't know which person my daughter is going to end up being. I have absolutely no idea. The best I can do is bump and nudge her in the right direction, which is oddly how I think of parenting. Like I just, right. if, if they get a little too far off, I'm like, Oh, over there back here. I think my job is, I've said this before. I think my job as a parent is to be able to repeat something a million times without sounding irritated by having to say it again, because they need to hear it a lot before it sinks into them. Mm. And, and so, you know, you start off with this great message and then you get irritated because you have to say it a ton, but that was your job. And if you didn't want to do that, you shouldn't have a kid because that's what's <laughs> going to end up happening. You know, they're going to need to know things. And, you know, like you said, their executive function's not great until they get to a certain age. And then what if on top of that, your kid has diabetes and their blood sugar is crazy. Then their ability to think about things is even lesser. And mm -hmm. no, no one talks about that. No one talks about like my blood sugar is 200. I'm probably a little altered. Right. You know, but it, uh, she, she's hard to get along with. What a short temper on that one. Like that kind of thing. Um, right. Meanwhile, I get notes from people all the time. One of the things they're most grateful for when their kids' blood sugars become lower and stable is the return of a, of a, a personality that they remember before diabetes. Hmm. So I don't know. I think it's too yep. much of – I think diabetes is a completely – like I said in the beginning, it's a small thing. Right there's a couple of core truths about it, and then from there there are a million leaves coming off of a million branches, and they all over time should be understood. The more of it you understand, I think the better chance you have of being in, going in a direction that you want to go. So a lot of weird metaphors in there, but um, but I, I don't think it's something you can learn all at once. I think you can get the basics down at once. I think there are some things people can tell you that will be helpful. Then it's up to you to how much you care about it. It's up to finding out how much time you have in your life to see how you can implement it. Um, you know, are you going to end up being, you know, I don't know if you saw this week, but I put up an episode with a, an adult type one who drinks a lot and came mm. on and came on and talked about it because it just occurred to me one day, some people drink more than other people. Those people have type one diabetes too. So right. when I get off here with you, I'll be responding to an email from a guy in his mid twenties who said, I smoke a lot of pot and I have type one. And I was like, great, come on and tell me about it. Because one of your kids is going to go off and smoke a lot of pot and have type one. So they should have some base of idea of what to do about it. Like I, I don't buy into the idea that you, you lie to people about what exists in the world because then they won't get to it. I think they need to know what, you know, I think that there'll be some people who hear the drinking episode and hear a 
funny story about a woman who drinks a lot. And I think there'll be some people who hear it and go, I'm really glad to understand this because I drink the way this person does and I'm going to have to figure that out. Yeah. It's, it's also that, um, you know, you think about diabetes as being something unique, but if your kid doesn't have diabetes as you, you raise them, right. They don't drink throughout their childhood, throughout their teenage years, right. You keep that, you keep them, uh, in terms of alcohol, you keep them in a good place. And then, you know, when they go off to college, uh, some of them are going to start drinking a lot and, and some of those are going to drink forever, but most of them will not, you know, will will moderate it after a while. And, and so you kind of, there's this period of time where, you know, you've been working so hard to manage them in a, in a very particular way. And then they're going to go off for a while and, you know, it, it, and do their own thing. Like I, I think about that metaphor that you use a lot, you know, about the, the idea of the, the sugar in your blood, you know, being like sandpaper, right. And doing bad things in there. And so you work so hard to get a low A1C throughout their childhood. Cause that's your job as a parent. Um, but then they're going to go off for a few years and, and their A1C might be higher. And how do you feel about that? Right. Are you like, well, that's, that's just part of growing up and there's going to be this period of time when that might happen. And I've done them a real goodness as a parent by making sure that that was the first time in their life when that happened, as opposed to it, it was the 11th out of, you know, the 11th year in a row where that happened. And, and they're going to have to go through that period where, you know, and hopefully it's a, it's going to be short, and so it won't have that kind of damage. And then 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 they'll get to be more of an adult, and they'll have that executive functioning again, and they'll they'll be able to ask for that advice or ask you what you know, you know. And I and and that's true of of any element of of a child who's going off to college. So you know, it's 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 stressful, but it's also the same kind of stress in some ways that anybody feels. One hundred percent. Arden is going to give a slightly tailored and different talk than my son did, but it's. It's going to be the same idea. When when my son left for school the night before he left, I pulled him into a room and I said, I don't think I need to tell you any of this, but I'm going to anyway. And uh, then I said, Dan, I'm sorry, I'm going to curse and I'll beep it out later. I said, there are a few things in life that are un And he said, <laughs> what? I said, once you f*** up, you can't un them. <laughs> so I just went over those things and some of them were not good. I said, you know, you, you, you can't get a person pregnant because you can't that doesn't go backwards. You, mm -hmm. you can't kill a person. And I don't think you're going to go out there and murder somebody, but you can't hit someone with your car. You can't like, there's a thing. If that happens to you, even if it's by mistake, it'll stick with you for the rest of your life. Even if you're not injured, the idea of you hurting another person will, will alter your life in a way you can't imagine right now. You know, and I went through a couple of things and one of them for me, for Arden is going to be her health. Like if you send your health down a path, that you can't get back off of, it's going to alter everything. And what's the point? Like, and that's what I said to my son. I'm like, what's the point, man? I was like, everything you've done for these first 18 years, what's the point now of going and doing one silly thing that messes it up? Sure, it's not going to happen to most people. Most people aren't going to hit someone with their car. Most people aren't going to blow all these things that we talked about, right? I'm like, but if you are the person that that happens to, that's it. You, you can't go backwards. That's who you are now. And that's where you move forward from. And maybe in some cases, you won't be able to move forward from that. Maybe that'll be where your life ends with that one stupid mistake. I said, so there's just these few things. If you avoid them, you just have such a better chance. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, so why not just avoid yep. these few things? And to me, one of them for Arden is going to have to be, you know, you, you have to avoid the desire to ignore your diabetes. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be one of the things I'm going to say to her, whether she does it or not, 
is another thing. But I'm releasing myself of guilt, by the way, Dan. <laughs> I gave him that talk. If he goes out and gets some girl pregnant, I'm going to go like, oh, I told you not to do that. And so, <laughs> and there were ways around it, my friend. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it just, to me, there's only so, I was going to say there's only so much you can control. But what the truth is, is there's none of it that you can control. You yeah. know, like the best you can do is, is just put them in the mindset that you think they're going to need to make that thing work and then give them the ability to know that you're still here and you're happy to help whenever they need it. That's, that's basically what I did. So it'll, the kid will work out or he won't work out. Arden will, or she won't, she'll take her diabetes seriously or she won't. If she doesn't, I'll support her and try to help her do it. And, you know, hopefully it won't turn into a situation where I'm the equivalent of a, you know, parent of a, of a drug user, like where I'm just constantly saving their life over and over again. And that's my, my toiling demise. Like, I hope that's not my situation, but it's somebody's right. You know, there's, I I just got reached out to the other day and said, can you talk about, you know, hardcore drug use and, and how it affects people who have type one diabetes. I was like, Mm. I will look for somebody to look into that and, and see if I can't find somebody to talk to about it. Um, that's a real, you know, just think whatever the, whatever the percentage of the population who are alcoholics or addicted to hard drugs, you know, whatever that percentage of the population is, that's the same percentage of the diabetes population has that issue. Right. And, you know, no one's, no one's talking to them about their blood sugars at all, probably, you know, I don't know. And, and those people are someone's children. Right. So. I, I can see some promising spinoff series from the Juice Box podcast. <laughs> as long as it's not you, Dan, don't steal my ideas, okay? No, 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 no you should. Gonna... <laughs> All these people are going to work for you. We're way over an hour. I have a, I have a question. Um, you have a podcast, and so when did so when did you start your podcast? What what got you to start it? Um, I started it in 2016, um, and uh, the truth is that we I wanted to write a book. Uh, our podcast is about thinking differently, thinking more creatively about the future of Judaism and ultimately about religion and wisdom traditions in general. And um, Netflix didn't scoop in and try to get that from you. <laughs> not yet. Uh, not, but but there, well, there was that podcast company, right, that Netflix did a show about. So, you know, it could always happen. Um, and uh, anyway, I wanted to write a book about it, but I felt like we needed to do more research and and uh, and and ended up saying, let's do the research in the form of the podcast. I never really thought that it was going to get a lot of listeners. So that was a that was an exciting surprise. So then it became a thing in, in and of itself. But it started off as a research project. That's amazing. Good for you. And it, you're doing incredibly well with it. That's it's, I don't want to ask you how many listeners you have because that's private. But I, I love that you're that you're. That, that happened. And I think it, it talks about, I mean, it kind of shines light on what we've been saying the whole time, right? Like you started off by saying, I want to write a book, but instead I'll do this because it needs more air, right? I need to step back farther. I need to see more research. I need to understand more ideas. And then all the thing, all of a sudden the thing you found grew into its own thing, probably makes the idea of a book feel a little unnecessary at times. Yeah. And, and I think it's actually very similar to, you know, I was griping about the doctors in the healthcare industry. Um, but, but essentially, right. In some ways, the pod, your podcast and, and other endeavors are kind of going around that and ultimately giving people a path to get the, the information that they need outside of those institutions. And functionally, that's what I'm doing in my case, in the case of Judaism. But uh, there, there are all kinds of ways in which the internet is making, new pathways available to people. And 
you know, I think including me, it's, uh, you know, you still have a desire to gripe at the old system and why, why don't they figure it out and why don't they change? But the truth is, is that I think that those of us who are just kind of going forward in a different way um, are, are sort of solving that problem in a new way on our own. Yeah. Um, you know, the frustrating part for me, and I think the frustrating part for you is just like that. I know it's not that I right, like you said earlier, it's not for my ego and it's not for at higher advertising rates, but it's that I know that there are people out there that need this information. And because I'm a one person, two person operation, you know, without a lot of money, I don't have a marketing budget and I don't have a way to make sure that the word is out. If I, if I had a way to make, if I knew, for example, that every single person who was diagnosed with diabetes came out with a subscription to the juice box podcast, I don't think I would really care what was going on in the endo office. Um, but because I know that there are all these people that are going out and that never hear about it for 10 years, um, or I, I worry about, you know, then, then, then I, I worry that there are people who could, manage their diabetes so much better. And in my case, the people could have so much of a richer, uh, a richer internal life or a richer spiritual life, whatever you want to call it. And, and just never heard about the new way of getting that. And instead they go to the old way, like a synagogue in, in my case, or an endo office in your case, and they get, and I know what information they're getting there. And it's not the information that they really need or want. And that's, that's frustrating. So, you know, part of it is that I think, and I'm sure that what we're doing in, on the internet is, is eventually going to grow up. Like we were talking about a kid growing up and going to college, like our work is going to grow up and go to college. And, and they're going to be all kinds of new ways that people uh, connect with this stuff. And we just happen to be living through this early stage of it where it's all new and it's the wild west. And on the one hand, that's so exciting and awesome. And on the other hand, it's, it's frustrating because you know that that's where the really good stuff is happening, but, but not everybody knows about it. And that's just like you, like you're saying about the kid going to college, like it is what it is. That's just, that's just what we have to deal with right now. I have to say that I understand your frustration and, you know, I've said it already here, but it's, it's palpable, you know, like the idea that, you can't, you, you feel like you have this, this, this stuff, whatever you want to call it. It's an idea and it could, you've seen it be helpful and you'd like it to help more people. And like you said, I don't have a, I, this is just me. Like this podcast yep. is me. Um, and so I have to grow it and believe in it and then adjust it where it's not right and then let it grow. And if it's the right tool, it'll make it. Like, I hate to say it like that, but I, yeah. I, I definitely feel like that. Like, like, if this podcast is what I think it is, and I tend to it properly, then it will continue to grow, and it will continue to help people, and it will find more people. And if it doesn't, then I will take that as an indication that either it wasn't the right vehicle, or I wasn't the right driver, or maybe a combination of those ideas, and that somebody else hopefully will come along and pick up the mantle and move it forward from here. I certainly am standing here, you know, on the backs of a lot of really brilliant people, some of whom it may have sounded like I trashed earlier, but I wasn't. They just, they were people who got caught in a space and they stayed there. And mm -hmm. I saw what they did and I thought, I don't want to just do that. I've told that story here before. I'm like, I don't want my blog to just be this thing that makes other people feel like, oh yeah, diabetes sucks. That guy agrees with me. I don't mm -hmm. want, like, it's got to help people. How can I do that? And then I, I stepped through those ideas. The podcast exists because I saw blogging going away. I had 2 million clicks a year. And then mm. all of a sudden, one year I had a million and a half. And I was like, uh-oh, I don't think I'm doing anything different. What's going on? 
So I started asking friends I had who were doing it. They were all seeing it slip them. And I thought, all right, I'm not going to stand here on the Titanic till it's just me and, you know, Leo on the headboard. Like I'm getting out now, you know, so I didn't bail on my blog. I use my blog, I think in a really good way still, but I'm like, how do I build on this and make it something else? And then I followed the only skill I had, which is being able to endlessly talk. And so (laughs) I just saw, I'm like, well, let me try this. And it caught on. I've seen other people launch podcasts that don't catch on. And they're about the same idea. There are other people who launch diabetes podcasts and they don't get four people listening to them. And then that's the end of it. And so I don't take that as an indication that I'm better than they are. It's just that whatever this is and whatever I am all mixed together, people seem to be enjoying. And so that's it. I'll try to make it bigger and it'll get as big as it can. And I don't mean big as in successful. I mean, big as in reach. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I've never said this on this podcast, Dan, but there's something about having you on here that makes me say this. It's almost, I think, inappropriate. I'd never know. But I always relate how I feel about the podcast to the last scene of Schindler's List. And I'm, hmm. not, I'm not making this up because you're here. There's a moment in in the movie, which I don't know if it's based on real fact or not, but I think he recognizes, Schindler does, that he um, he has a piece of jewelry left over he didn't realize he had. And you can see over his face the wash of, like, I wonder what I could have done with the money I could have gotten for this jewelry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sadness on his face about uh, about things left, you know, to the devices of the world that he felt he could have intervened with. And these are not an apples to apples feeling, of course. I, I don't mean that in any way. But when I get a note back from somebody and it talks about the change in their life, I feel good about the note. And then I wonder what I did wrong and why then that one note wasn't five notes. You, you know, like, I, yeah, I, it just hits me that way. So. Yeah. Well, and and the one thing that I would sort of add to that and is that, um, I, I know that not everybody feels this way and not everybody has to feel this way. And, and if your kid is diagnosed with diabetes and, and all you want to focus on is your own kid, I think that's totally legitimate. But I think that a lot of us are desperate to help other people. And like, I've actually thought about, you know, not really, but I've thought about, you know, maybe, maybe I should become a clinical diabetes educator. Like I, I'm really good at this, you know, like, but I love my career. You know, I don't want to change what I'm doing only because I happen to know that I would be really good at this. But the question is, is there more that I can do as someone who doesn't have a diabetes podcast? Is there something more that I could do to help a few people? And that's, to me, that would be the next step beyond the podcast, you know, for, for you. I mean, not that you have to do it or that somebody inspired could say, okay, how do I now make a, a way for all the people who feel grateful to this podcast for the help that it's given them and kind of pay it forward in, in light of the fact that I know that the healthcare uh, organizations or doctors are not really making that something that's easy to do. So is there some kind of way, could we be like community organizing on our own in each city so that, you know, somehow, you know, I don't know, we have someone stationed outside the hospital that watches when somebody leaves the endo (laughs) so that they can follow them. You know, that's pretty creepy. But, you know, how do you get that information? But like, how do you at least kind of make it clear that, 
some some volunteer whose advice is not medical or otherwise is going to show up at your house and sit with you for as long as you need it, hold your hands, help you understand that it's actually totally manageable and coach you through the process of managing it so that so that, you know, which is which, again, I, I think is something that's totally doable in a matter of weeks. And instead, people spend years, you know, not really able to to manage and not getting good results. And and, um, you know, that's the part where where I feel like, you know, how how is there more that I can do? And, and all the other listeners of the podcast, how is there more that that we can do to amplify what you're doing beyond just the audience for a podcast? Even it can grow to be as big as it can be. There's still always going to be more people that you know don't listen to podcasts. I think so. I think that yeah. question really boils down to like scalability, right? Like, how do you scale the podcast to reach more people? And, and so that it works when, when you get to them. Um, and that's a tough question to answer. You know, like I, at the moment, you know what I'm doing in the next six months to address what you said initially is that I am, I'm taking, um, offers to speak at JDRF events in cities that people don't get excited to go to very often. Hmm. So, and I, I don't mean any, you know, there's some bigger cities and you'll see people in the, in the space, like, Oh, I'm speaking at this one. It's a, it's a, you know, a, a huge event, 600 people at it. And, uh, instead I've made myself available to the rest of them. And I, and I, and it makes you sad when you get the initial phone call and they're like, look, you probably wouldn't be interested in coming here. That's how they start. And I'm like, no, no, no. Why are, are there people there who have diabetes? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm plenty interested, uh-huh. you, you know? And so I'm going to go do some of them and then I'm going to do some larger ones to try to build up. The idea that, you know, so other people can see me, my visibility, so that I can go find other ones. And I'm going to do as many as I can. I think at this point, I've put more on my calendar than I should have. I think I'm going to go speak like eight or nine times in the next six months. And that's more than I should be doing uh, for my own, you know, it's not a money-making endeavor. It's not like a business. It's, it's It's a time suck, to be perfectly honest, you know. And, um, but you go out and you reach two, three, four, five, six hundred people. Most of them are newly diagnosed. And then you have this real opportunity to put them on the path that exists today instead of the path from 2008 that someone's probably going to tell them about. Yep. So I, I figure I figure if I can go start those little bonfires in enough corners of the country, then they'll spread. And then one day I'll just get on here and rant and rave for two and a half hours about everything I hate. And that'll be the last episode of the podcast and that'll be it. <laughs> and so uh, and and I will have done my thing. I said to somebody recently, I hope one person shows up at my funeral and says, that guy helped me be healthier. Like, that's really what I'm, that's kind of how I feel about it. And so it gets lost for some people because I, I get through this podcast with a lot of sarcasm and, and humor and some of it's darker. And, um, I think that maybe some people wouldn't believe that about me, but I really just want people to be healthier. You know, I really, I want parents not to cry in the shower. I want, Hmm. I want kids to be able to go off to college without having to think too much about it. You know, I want 35 year old people to not wonder when their eyes are going to start needing tending to like, that's just the kind of stuff I want. And I figure if I grow it here and maybe I'll understand it enough to help my own daughter with it. And that's pretty much it. You know, it's not all that altruistic. It didn't start that way. At least, you know, this whole thing started with me trying to figure out how to help my daughter. Yep. And so that's it, man. I don't know. Um, nope. yep. I, I, I very much appreciated talking to you and we've gone way over an hour, uh, but that's fine. 
Um, if you wouldn't mind, could I, after we say goodbye on the podcast here, could I talk to you for a second? Probably yeah. not. Oh, that'd be great. Yep. Um, did I leave anything out that you wanted to send? By the way, if you wanted to help in your own community, I'll come out and speak in Chicago. You, you know, like get some people together and we'll put we'll put people in motion and then maybe we'll create more of you and that'll be more people that reach more people and you can feel good about that, you know? All right. Well, thanks for that. I'll look into what I can make happen. Uh, so I'm sorry. Did we not go over? I'm sure we didn't. Go no, over I think that was good. That was. I think nothing jumps out at me. Cool. I think we talked about the main things. Yeah. So, Dan, what's the name of your podcast? It's called Judaism Unbound. Very nice. And I can get it all the places where podcasts are podcast. Yep. And if you just search for Judaism, it's usually the first one that pops up. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. And thank you for everything that you're doing. Huge thanks to the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter and Touched by Type 1 for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox Podcast. Go to contournext.com forward slash juicebox or touchedbytype1.org to visit the sponsors. There's also links in your show notes and available at juiceboxpodcast.com. And huge thanks to Dan for coming on and going, I thought, toe-to-toe with me because I was super talky during this episode and when I gave him a chance to talk, he came right back. He was uh, very well thought out, great at delivering his thoughts. I, I really appreciated him being on. Dan's podcast, Judaism Unbound, is available everywhere the podcasts are available, and I have never heard it, so I can't tell you anything about it, but I can tell you it's incredibly popular. If that sounds interesting to you, Judaism Unbound. Thank you very much for listening to the Juicebox Podcast, supporting the show with listener reviews at Apple Podcasts, by sharing with other people. I very much appreciate it. We'll be back later this week. Who's we? It's me. I'll be back later this week with more episodes. Thanks so much for listening.